0: Uh, thanks for being with us for the Hertel podcast, long form for those of you that are used to the daily radio show, haven't done one of these in a while, going to get back to them on a topic that is very important. As promised, uh, we don't just talk culture and politics. We talk how culture and politics work. And both of those things are studies of people, uh, how they work, how they govern themselves. That all goes to mental health. And it's a hot topic for the last few years way back in the beginning. Uh, I think the fourth or fifth show we ever did was with Dr. Catherine Gordon, Mental Health. It is still one of the top five listened to podcasts we've ever done. So long past overdue to touch back in and run back with Dr. Catherine Gordon, who I'm going to call Katie the rest of the day because I will mess up and say that name wrong. Dr. Katie, how are you, ma'am? Thank you for joining us.
1: I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me back on. Uh,
0: I, I love having you on because You do what we always like to do. We talk about these really hard, complex things, but you do it in a plain language way. Uh, You use a lot of pop culture, which we'll get to a little bit later on. Um, But let's start here with some nomenclature. Um, I think we blow by and we use buzzwords a lot. So I want to make sure we don't do that because we have time to dig into it today. But when we're talking about mental health, uh, we just say that term, but that's a wide, all-encompassing term for a whole lot of different things, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think people mean different things by it and I think it's usually helpful in a way people contrast it to physical health. Although most of us know how interconnected those things are. When we have anxiety, it certainly affects us physically. When we're feeling depressed, we can feel physically in pain or fatigued and all of those things. So mental health generally is looking at our thoughts and emotions and well general well-being, satisfaction with life our outlook on life, how we feel about ourselves and others.
0: And we, we hear so much about it. We hear about removing the stigma. Where's the stigma come from? Cause we know people are mean and people make fun of people, but that's not what we're really talking about with stigma. Is it because it's, it goes beyond just a teasing or a joking around or humor when when a mental health professional or when commentators like me are talking about we need to remove the stigma of mental health what are they really saying there in plain language
1: I think that it's it's the shame that can come from oneself or from other people the idea that mental health problems are things people just need to snap out of or that it means there's something wrong with the person for struggling I think this has improved over time. There's still more to go, but I think there's a lot more understanding of that mental health problems are not the fault of the person who is struggling with them. I think more people get that now than in the past.
0: One thing we talked about with the COVID-19 pandemic was this is kind of a unique thing in history where pretty much everybody on the planet had to deal with the same thing at the same time. That's really unusual. Like, And I understand there was waves and things like that. But for the most part, everybody was dealing with this at the same time. As a psychologist, as somebody that studies human behavior, I got to think that's kind of a unique event where everybody has the same stressor at the same time. That doesn't happen a lot. What have we learned from that? Because that's a heck of a control group for a scientist, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it it, it is really something that I would say as I do therapy often comes up in most of our sessions. We kind of talk about if someone was sick, if someone had to miss work, relatives that have been ill. So it's kind of, I've never had where most therapy sessions have one topic that's common across people. I think one of the things that we've learned from it is that people have responded really differently to it although i think most people have been stressed in one way or another there are some people who who if they have for example <clears throat> less flexibility at work or less support they tend to be more isolated they might be struggling more and so i think even though it's one shared commonality and in one way i think that can make people feel less isolated and more connected you can also see how different the impact is depending on individual circumstances
0: how much does isolation play into it because for a lot of people, um, the COVID-19 stuff, that was kind of the first time a lot of them in their lives, unless they're you know much older, remember like World War II or maybe the 70s gas, they don't remember things like uh, shortages on the shelf. They don't remember things like lockdowns where you're not allowed to go somewhere unless you're in like a natural disaster area. This, this is stressors that a lot of Americans especially just have never faced before. They're not used to stuff like that. What is it about a brand new stressor out of the clear blue sky? Just something as simple as like, no, you can't go to school. No, you can't go to the grocery store, things like this. How bad does that just mess people's minds up? Because it's just if just starting at the the lower level of, well, it's a breaking routine to this just makes people completely melt down because they just can't handle something that different.
1: It's a great question. I think that people were a lot of people were feeling pretty resilient at the beginning, especially when the idea was that, okay, once we have vaccines, things are gonna more or less return to normal. And I think as it's persisted in my observation, I think it's been harder for people because they're starting to forget what does quote unquote normal mean and how long is this going to go on? And so I think that's been difficult. And while some people have gone back to seeing people as much as they did before, the reality is that there are always these extra fears or, of people getting sick or things spreading or just other types of impact. And it's interesting how much that changes geographically, depending on where you are. In North Dakota, it's there aren't in the beginning of the pandemic. There were more restrictions, capacities at restaurants. They stopped sports, things like that. And now pretty much there is none of that. So I think that all shapes people's perspective in isolation as well. But I would definitely say that the more it persists for a lot of people, it's been harder for them.
0: Let's uh, let's go through some demographics here. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with the kids. Just on a common sense level, I'm not a scientist. I can read numbers. I can read data. Mm-hmm. But as a parent, just common sense level, if you interrupt two years, if, I know my kids were home out of school 18 months almost, just have like 14, 15 months total, That's solid. They didn't do the back and forth. There is no way you can throw that kind of disruption into childhood development and not have some kind of an after effect. How long is it going to be before we know that effect? Like scientifically, I don't think we know the full effect in the data, but you've already been seeing it. We know the numbers are through the roof of people seeking things like therapy and counseling. We've seen the behavior numbers in school is this something that's going to take a long time to really get our arms around what we just did? And I understand we kind of had to, so I I, I get it. Is it going to be a long time before we get our hands around what we did to this generation of children with this uh, COVID pandemic?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's, it's hard to even think about the after time as as we still continue to go through the pandemic. But I, and many mental health professionals and parents, like you said, just at a common sense level, are concerned about the impact on kids having their activities disrupted. I mean, even the ones where um, the schools have stayed pretty much open, there are just factors of teachers being absent because they're sick or faculty and staff or their friends being sick and all of that stuff. And all of that, that uncertainty is difficult for kids who really thrive on routine and having regular um, expectations with regard to school. And that's another thing that understandably people were trying to adjust school back and forth, depending on what the rates were. But even that can be really difficult on kids. And then seeing their parents stressed is difficult, too. And so I, I am concerned about the long term impact this is going to have on kids. And I think that we really need to have a lot of care available for them as, as they get older.
0: What are we looking for, like going forward? Because let's um, just picking a demographic here, because, you know, kids are resi- more resilient than we give mm-hmm. them credit for in a lot of ways. We don't want to blow anything off, but they are, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, you know, we're parents, we understand we freak out a lot more than they do and they're fine sometimes. And sometimes it's the opposite. They freak out and we don't understand why. So what are you looking for from these age groups, uh, adolescents moving into teens, teens moving into adults? What's some of the kind of indicators or mile markers or whatever you want to call it? You tell me the terminology here. What are we looking for that we should be maybe paying attention to, concerned about or watching out for as these different demographic age groups start advancing and trying to you know even in their own minds figure out what it is they just lived through
1: i think one of the things that's that i am concerned about and is is worth looking for is a general outlook on life in terms of do they have hope for the future i think that one of the things that's been difficult through the pandemic is kind of getting hopes up that things are getting better and then there's a new wave and there's a new strain and in addition to that kids might have various feelings about how um, their government leadership, their school leadership are handling things. And I think that can start to make them question the world as a place that they can count on to um, to be running smoothly for them to get what they need. And so I think it's important to check in with them about what what reasons they have for hope, how are they feeling connected with their friends? What do they think about in terms of their future? How has that been impacted? And so it's kind of a general worldview and their meaning in life and how's that being impacted by all of this and talking to them about that.
0: Gordon, see, I said it right that time, uh, clinical psychologist. Let's, let's go with a little bit of an older group. Um, we've got all kinds of data from the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, that the college-age young adult demographic, that greatly changed their cultural perspective, that greatly changed their political, uh, there was movement in their political views because they went through that financial crisis, right, as they were trying to enter the job market and buy homes and these sorts of things what about the college age and young adult demographic? Uh, I'm one of those, our, our oldest uh, graduated college, March of 2020. That was a great time to try to get graduated at college. Um, what about that demographic group? Because they're, they're adults now, they're trying to enter the workforce. They're trying to kind of find their way in the world. And they have that during their college years, which is another one of those really important developmental times.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that one of the things that I've observed um, in interacting with college students is feeling some loss if they've, if they've had college during the pandemic where the classes aren't the way they thought they were going to be. The experiences, the social experiences, which of course is a huge part of college, are different than they had hoped. And so I think We do see higher rates of anxiety and depression and and less engagement in some of the college students that are struggling. And so I think that it's really important to recognize that, validate that those are understandable concerns, and then provide tools for managing mental health, for thinking about things, connecting, finding meaning, having friendships finding ways to look forward and have hope. I think those tools are really important and often they need guidance with it.
0: Yeah. And that age group, they're very online. Uh, mm-hmm. They have a lot of their relationships already online. I know I, I, I noticed with my younger children, you know, they didn't really miss a beat talking to their friends because they all talk on social media anyway, TikTok and gaming and these sorts of things. Let's talk about a demographic that does not have that. Um, we've seen the numbers. Uh, They call it the great resignation. Uh, Older Americans, a lot of them during the pandemic said, heck with this, I'm going to the house. They retired early. Um, They're not working as much. Older people are not working the part-time jobs they used to. What about the older Americans and and their kind of situation? Because some of them are not as online. So it hits them even harder when you have the isolation effects like a pandemic, like uncertainty economically, things like this. What about them?
1: Yeah, I I think that... For some people, resigning, that that could be a good thing. Maybe they have more time to spend with their family and more time to take up with some of their hobbies. But one thing that I think is taken for granted sometimes is that we need to interact with people. We need to have relationships with people. It is essential to our health. And I think that it can kind of fall on the back burner and get ignored and lead to a lot of loneliness. So it actually takes a lot of intentional effort, especially if you're not regularly going to workplace, you're not regularly interacting online. And so it's important to find those times to make phone calls, to go to places, whatever, go to church, whatever it is, and have those activities that keep us connected to one another and not kind of let it fall as as less of a priority than physical health.
0: Yeah, and um, on that note, what is the issue with access? I know we talk about mental health, but we seem to have, before you even get into the services of mental health, is it the bum rush of people that are having mental health crises right now? Is it all those, we know the adolescent system is just absolutely flooded right now. Why is access such a problem right now? Because that seems like it's not even a systemic issue with healthcare that we're already talking about. You, you can't get an appointment if you want one. What is going on with the access to care since you brought it up?
1: There are only, only so many mental health professionals out there. And so when the need gets that high, it can really just exceed the ability to meet all of those needs. I think that that's especially true in areas that are more sparsely populated, where, like where I live in North Dakota, there are some rural areas where there aren't that many therapists. And when the demand is that much higher, it just makes it more difficult to get in. I think that this is part of the reason that it's so important to take preventative measures with mental health so that it's not waiting until people are in a crisis to get in. And and I think that um, that's something that some of the financial assistance, for example, especially that existed in the beginning of the pandemic, I think probably helped people's mental health early on because they had fewer stressors worrying about being able to pay for things that they need. And so that can kind of prevent it from getting to the point where many more people are in crisis and all at once trying to seek care.
0: Yeah. Talking to Dr. Katie Gordon, um, the, the one perspective on this is that the access to care issue um, is a professional level one. The other one is that it's a systemic one which in the, now I'm usually on, on policy problems like this. I'm usually in all of the above guy, like, Hey, there's probably multiple ways we need to address this. But since you are a provider, you are, uh, which is the pressing need here? Is it the system isn't set up correctly or is it, we've just got to get more providers first. Cause we can't even, we don't even know how to set up a system. If you're this shorthanded.
1: I'm an all of the above person too. I think that I think that there are, I think that we do, we need more providers, but I also think that there need to be ways that make it easier for people to access mental health care. I mean, the, the having telehealth and video visits for therapy has been one thing that has been hugely advanced during the pandemic, more insurance coverage for video visits and phone calls, and that has helped access. So that's one example. We still need more, but that I would like to see sustained kind of permanently because that has allowed many more people to access care.
0: Now, talk about that in a practical way, because you are a provider. Uh, you're on that end of it. Um, it's a calling, but it's also a business. Let's all be adults here. Every, Almost everybody, even elderly folks now, everybody's got a cell phone. So just common sense wise, you're thinking if you got a cell phone, you should be able to get a mental health appointment pretty quickly. What's the obstacles from the business side of it and the provider side of it? We know the insurance is Byzantine and that sort of thing, but what do you see as a provider as barriers that we can maybe work at either regulatory-wise or technology-wise? Because it seems like everybody's got the technology now. Everybody's got a phone in their hand, so they should be able to get somebody on the line somewhere in the world. What's the preventatives? What's the barriers?
1: I think, like you said, the big thing is insurance coverage. When insurance covers it, most people can make it work, even if it's just a phone call. I think it's harder for children and probably people with certain mental health needs where it is more important that they're seen in person. It's harder to stay engaged on a phone for many children and and for some people. And so I do meet with people in person and also do telehealth and having both of those options has been helpful depending on what the person needs. But I think that um, being able to pay for it has been the main thing that has come up is being able for people to have coverage for it. That's been the big thing. As on a, From a provider standpoint, I, I have had no problem. I mean, there are technical issues sometimes, but the phone almost always works. And so as long as that's covered for the patient, then, then that's very workable.
0: Is it, um, is, is, and I understand there's people like on the spectrum that have trouble with that. There's children, like you mentioned, elderly people may not even a a simple smartphone. They may not be technologically savvy with it, but, um, especially when we start talking about, again, there's a spectrum of this like crisis care, like that initial, um, I know we've had you on the show. You've talked about suicide. You've written a book about suicide that we'll talk about later. You talk about like, man, sometimes it just takes that that five seconds to, for somebody to be able to contact somebody. It seems to me the critical care stuff of at least getting that initial, Hey, we don't have anybody right now, but can you get, can you make it two weeks? Can you do, it seems like that could be a bridge gap here of some type of, you can call somebody somewhere and get somebody on the phone line and it would make a huge practical and immediate difference to the mental health care crisis.
1: I agree with that. I I work in a medical setting. And so often um, there are nurses who can contact and just make contact and, and they're, they're wonderful. They're empathic. They can help with problem solving. They can connect with community resources. And that way people don't feel like they're alone as they wait to get into care.
0: And I'm, I'm a VA patient. So I know the VA one, there's a lot of things the VA does bad. I bang on them all the time. When they do. One thing they do did good now is, um, your healthcare, you have secure messaging directly to your providers through the VA website now. I cannot tell you what a huge difference that is because so often you, you just can't get somebody on the phone for a 30-second question. Now I can send them a message to my different care providers, and you'll at least get a response. You may not get the answer because it's still the VA, but at least you get a hold of somebody. Um, is that something that's going to be scalable to the medical community at large? I know there's privacy concerns and stuff, but we, it seems like we are not adequately using technology, especially in mental health where there's privacy concerns but that the privacy issues with um doing technology from your own home from your own that's that's an area where a lot of people mental health wise might actually be more comfortable than actually going in and
1: I I think that's right. I I think that, um, and the healthcare system that I work in now has my chart, which a lot of systems have. And so patients are able to securely directly message me, which is better than email. I think a lot of providers use email or other types of things like that. My chart is more secure and security is extremely important when it comes to mental healthcare and, and private information. But I agree. I think that's been a big deal because if it's, if patient wants to just ask me something or tell me one quick thing, I can directly receive that. And that helps, especially sometimes the way that people manage wait lists for therapy is to see people every other week instead of every week. And that way you can see more patients. So being able to have that message option in the meantime is is definitely helpful.
0: We've been talking about uh, patient mental health a lot. How's the providers holding up? Like we don't stop and talk about that, but we already have a shortage of them. Uh, we've seen, I know the frontline healthcare workers for like, you know, the ERs and things they've gotten a lot of I've got to imagine the flip side of the mental health crisis is our providers have got to be, uh, stressed. They've got to be having their own mental health crises with this. How's the providers holding up? Because if we lose them, then the rest of this ain't going to matter a whole lot. So how y'all doing? Are you okay?
1: (laughs) I'm really glad you asked that. I in talking to other mental health providers. I think that a lot of us are I mean many of us go to therapy ourselves to make sure that we're doing okay and that we can we can do our jobs, but it's it's also unique in that we're going through the same kind of events as our patients are during this time, and I think that can help us connect with patients, but it can also make it difficult because there's not that distance when we're talking about coping with something. There are often things that we're we're trying to cope with our own concerns about our children, about the long-term effects, about isolation. And so I think that it has been wearing and difficult. And I think that some people have reduced their caseloads or, you know, have done things like that, because I will say, at least in our training, something that is really important is that we are trained very well to pay attention to our levels of of, of mental health and well being, and to make sure that we're taking care of it so that we can provide good care. And so, um, that's not always easy to do in practice. For example, if a lot of people want to get in and be seen, it's hard to say, no, I can't see you and keep our caseload manageable. So it's a struggle. I think that the, the biggest support has just been able to talk to other mental health professionals about how we're managing and check in on each other.
0: Yeah, we're talking to Dr. Katie Gordon about mental health on her tell. going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, she has written a book on uh, suicide prevention, a workbook. When we last talked to her, it was getting ready to come out. Now it's been out. So we get to do a little bit of review how that's gone. Also going to continue to talk about the mental health care system, talk about access to care. And uh, we'll get into one of her favorite topics, using pop culture to talk about health care. Good examples in media. It's been a while since we talked, so hopefully she's got some new ones for us.
1: Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel any time. DLM's Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.
0: Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. And here's the best part your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to trylifeemd.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifeemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. Welcome back to her Tell. We're talking to Dr. Catherine Gordon, clinical psychologist, friend of the program, uh, one of the OGs. She was one of the first episodes we ever did. Glad to finally have her back. Um, Let's, let's talk uh, suicide for a minute. Um, we had a very high-profile suicide in the news this past week, uh, former Miss USA. Um, on paper, uh, law degree, MBA from Wake Forest, had a TV gig, uh, was living in New York City, um, seemed to have everything, beautiful young woman, only 30 years old, and although they're still doing an investigation, the authorities feel pretty confident this was a suicide, jumped off a building. This is just another example, isn't it, of you just never know with somebody what's going on in their head, no matter how successful, no matter what's going on. And suicide can kind of strike people from just out of nowhere, can it?
1: Absolutely. It is so heartbreaking. And I saw this statement by her mother who said that she, even she, even as close as they were, had just recently learned how bad her depression was, that she was struggling.
0: What do you do? I've asked you this question before, but where do you get involved with somebody? Where's the line? Because everybody's sad. We just talked about, you know, everybody's stressed. Everybody has anxieties from COVID or work or whatever. Where do you actually start worrying about, okay, do I need to call somebody? Okay, do I need to leave this person alone? Uh, Give folks just a a couple practical things because you don't ever want to be overbearing and, and, and people can feel intrusive doing that, especially to a loved one or a stranger. But when when do you need to just kind of set aside that person's feelings and be like, okay, I need to call somebody. I need to get them seen. This person doesn't need to be left alone, that sort of thing.
1: It's a great question. And one thing that I want to say first is that I think that sometimes when people weren't able to step in or stop someone from dying by suicide, they blame themselves. And so I'm going to give suggestions for what what we can do and what we can try to do. But I also wanna be clear that we can, sometimes we just don't see it. We don't know how much someone is struggling and sometimes we can try to intervene and, and, and we aren't able to effectively do that. So if you've had that happen, um, you know I, I, I think about this young woman's mom and her blaming herself for not seeing it. And I think it's important to recognize the limits of what we can do. That being said, we are all capable of reaching people who are open to it. And so if you see changes in in someone, if you observe changes, even if they're not saying they're depressed or they're sad, but they, they just sound like they're feeling more hopeless or they feel like they're, they seems like they're not enjoying life. They're withdrawing from activities and people that they used to love. Then it's, it's always good to open up and check in with them. I'm a, a big proponent of being direct asking, are you, are you having thoughts about suicide? Are you doing okay? And the research suggests that asking directly does not plant the idea in people's head, but it can open a conversation. And the person might say, no, I'm I'm not, but I'm struggling. Or they might say, yeah, I am. and, And talk about it. And so those are some of the big factors to look for some other things that you tend to see are. um, that can be warning signs, although it varies depending on the person is um, if they're having really disrupted sleep, they seem more agitated. So those are all things to look out for and worth checking in. In terms of when to push if someone doesn't want, if someone kind of doesn't want to talk about it, I, I think that's a really, it's a difficult question. And one of the things that I try to think about is if I'm really worried about someone. And they don't seem like they want to talk to me in particular or want me to help connect them with someone. I might think about some of their loved ones, friends or family members who I can check in with too. Do you see this too? Are there things we might do together to help this person?
0: Um, I hate to even give you this question, but this is just the world we live in. When do you get the authorities involved? Like, when would you call a 911? When would you call? I know there's crisis lines as well, but all they can really do is talk to you. But obviously, if there's a physical threat or a weapon or somebody's on a ledge or something like that, but that that's almost an outlier. Usually it's way more subtle than that, isn't it? Well, I, I hate to just say when in doubt, call somebody and let them make the call. But that's pretty much what you're down to in these situations, isn't it?
1: This is such an area of controversy because I think that uh, I don't think there are any simple answers. I will say that if someone has you know done something to hurt themselves or they're about to and said that then that is when I I personally um, would would want to call the authorities to prevent them from being from being harmed I think that, if there are other ways, for example, if they're, they're talking about suicide, but there's an opportunity to get them in the emergency room for, to go over there and those types of things. I mean, it, it's hard to say. I don't mean to be vague. It's just there are so many different factors that go into it um, that, that I think there are other things to do besides call the authorities in a lot of situations. But on the other hand, sometimes that's the thing that can help if someone is imminently going to hurt themselves and, and you need help.
0: Yeah. You've talked about when you were, we interviewed you before the book came out, um, the mm-hmm. Suicide Thought Workbook. have it right here. Um, I did read it. You were nice enough to send me a copy of it. Um, when you're talking about self-help and self-care, because, like, you know, you live in a very rural part of the country up there in the, the northern Great Plains, when people are just by themselves... It, is there an effective way to give them some kind of a self-coping tool? Cause I, I know there's no such thing as a cure-all for, every, you know, there's no Tylenol for suicide prevention. You know, there's not one bullet, but what have you found out? Cause you've had about what a year since the book came out, give or take, you've got some feedback and data on it. Now is these tools applicable? And are they working for these people that are isolated that they can get a book? And at least it gets, maybe their mind just shifted a lot. We talk in my therapy at PTSD all the time. But like, sometimes you just got to shift your mind or physically change your mind. Is it effective?
1: That's the feedback that I'm getting is, um, you know, that people find it helpful. Many of them are also in therapy alongside it and don't find it as, uh, as a replacement. They also, there is something about having a dialogue and conversation that can be helpful, especially when you're struggling, but there are also people who won't go to therapy or can't access it. And so being able to buy, a book for $20 that they can do in the privacy of their own home and not worry about being seen. Sometimes that's a better fit for them too. And so the idea was to give more options of the maximum amount of options available. And there are, um, I have had some positive feedback about the it's a workbook. So the idea was to make it close to therapy where it's not kind of just throwing all this heavy jargon at someone and, and they have to think about it and have some huge, epiphany or revelation. It's very much broken down into step by step. I ask, you know, the the workbook asks a question, they fill it in. There are some small steps to take to make things better, but the overall picture of building hope, reducing pain and and connecting. So I've been very grateful for the positive feedback I received from people that either working with their therapist or working with it on their own, that they found it to be helpful.
0: Talk about the connection of those two because I've heard you talk about it. You've written about it a lot. You've talked about it on other podcasts. There's a connection between hope and pain. And I, I don't know how, how direct a line that is, but people in pain lose hope. And people with hope can cope with an, an extraordinary the, the mental ability to handle pain and loss and challenges if you can hold on to hope is something beyond what science can, I think you'd agree with this, beyond what science can explain. What, why are those two things so intrinsically connected when it comes to mental health? Because they really seem like not that this is a perfect seesaw, but if you were going to have one, those would be the two counterweights, wouldn't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's right. And there, and most theories of suicide scientific theories of suicide do look at pain and hope. A lot of people, does, when they desire suicide, it's because they they wanna escape pain. It's not that they they wanna die, they don't wanna exist. It's, it's not that, it's that they're in excruciating pain and and they want some relief from it. And hope can be a huge buffer because even if someone is in deep pain, if they feel there's any chance of it lifting and things improving in the future, they can hold on and say, okay, I'm in pain now, but I'm it's if it's going to improve, I can wait through this. I, I don't need to end my life. And so that's how they're related. It it soothes some of the pain to know that it's not going to be permanently at that excruciating level.
0: What is it um, about pain that just completely disrupts our? I don't even know the right term here, so you can help me, but that that brain-body connection, to use a real cliche term, but what is it about pain that just completely short-circuits everything about our thought process and our emotions?
1: One analogy that I've heard by Dr. David Klonsky, who's a psychologist who wrote the three-step theory, which I feature in the book, that I thought was a really useful way to compare to pain is he talked about when you have food poisoning and you're so sick, you can't really think of doing anything else because it's all consuming how terrible you feel. Uh, and that's kind of how pain can be when it hurts that bad, that you it's, it is physically very difficult to move your attention to other spaces or to imagine feeling better or feeling different because If we think about it from like an evolutionary perspective, we're meant to pay attention to pain. It means something's wrong. It means we need to do something to to make it better. And so that's why I think it just becomes all encompassing until we learn tools to manage, step back and alleviate it.
0: All right, let's lighten the topic up a little bit because okay. this is ours really heavy talking to Dr. Catherine Gordon. Uh, I love you do this. You do this every time we talk to you, but you love to use pop culture references to talk about mental health. We're talking about some ways to self-care. Part of that is in taking media that portrays mental health in a good way. So give us a couple of the new ones. Uh, I know you've wrote about like BoJack Horseman in the past, other shows that have had good, positive, some that kind of surprise folks. But what's a couple you've seen lately? Positive, positive mental health applications in media and movies and TV shows, whatever the case may be.
1: The show I've been big on watching lately is Cobra Kai. And um, hopefully some people are still watching it. I know it kind of, it gets, uh, well, let's just say it kind of, I think after the first couple seasons, it's just the karate. Some people tire of that, but I'm still enjoying it. I think there've been some really good mental health depictions in that show Um, For example, Sam, who is uh, Daniel's daughter, is attacked by Tori, and at first she has flashbacks and panic attacks as a result of that. So you see some realistic depictions of someone after they've experienced trauma, um, trying to avoid reminders of it trying, uh, having kind of a physiological startle reaction when seeing the person, having flashbacks and and that impacting her life. So I thought that was a good depiction. I think that Johnny as the main character, he struggles a lot with alcohol use. And I think that they managed to find a way, even though there are a lot of characteristics about him that people might not like, to find likable or sympathetic And that you can see how he's kind of feels like a failure and when he tries he he and doesn't live up then he tends to turn to alcohol again and so i think that some of the depictions in there have been pretty good
0: yeah i i find hollywood to be really ridiculous in a lot of cases and i mean i know we're doing streaming and it's not all hollywood anymore but for lack of a better term you know like where we have <laughs> we have parental ratings about there's smoking in this picture like what really but I think alcohol and, and to a lesser extent drug use, I think that's something that I've really seen a change in my lifetime. I'm 41. Um, I, I've really seen a change in how it's portrayed in media. And there, there's just no way to another one of those things. You just can't split up. You can't talk mental health without people self-medicating either with alcohol or drugs or you can even do it with your work. As I've learned, you can you can work yourself addictively like everything else. Um, do you see that as well, or am I accurate in that? Do you think that has gotten better in how it's portrayed?
1: I think so. I think that it's it's less. I think that there are ways that it's shown um, kind of less as like a self control issue, and more of that people have a lot of stressors, and one way that they might be prone to dealing with that is through substance use. And one of the things that they have done on Cobra Kai is they show a lot of backstories and show kind of when they didn't learn good mental health coping tools and some of the absence of parental figures in their life. And so I think that kind of context helps to make a more realistic picture of why someone might continue to try to escape the negative emotions they're feeling or the pain they're feeling through alcohol or substance use.
0: Yeah, and I don't want to give away plot lines on Cobra Kai because my kids love that show. I I need it, I need it in small doses. But um, when they took Chris back to Vietnam, I thought that was actually... I, I, I cringed when my, my kids said they were going to do it. I was like, uh-oh, here we go. I thought they actually did really well with that. I thought because you have such a just bluntly evil character. And, you know, some of it was a little over the top. The military accuracy wasn't there. But as far as explaining how somebody becomes evil and i hate to use that term but he's the bad guy in a movie mm-hmm. um i actually thought they did pretty well with that all things considered
1: well that that's good to hear from someone with a military background kind of that you felt that that there was some accuracy to it
0: yeah i i i i get the you know evil person puts you in an evil environment and you become evil to survive that that's a classic what's the term coping skill i guess but that that that's just human nature 101 stuff and if you're going to tell a story like that and talk about mental health, you know, this is all human behavior, one-on-one stuff. And we always talk about on our show, human nature is undefeated. You just got to try to learn to get some wins where you can. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Katie Gordon, we so appreciate talking to you. Uh, we talked about the book a little bit. So you talk about it. Tell us about uh, the workbook. You also do other media, you do podcasting, you do some writing. We'd love to have you back at ordinary times. Anytime you want to write about Cobra Kai or anything else. Again, you're you got an open invitation. Let folks know where you're at, where you're writing, what you're doing.
1: Sure. Well, you can, um, lately, what I've been working mostly on is my podcast, which is called Psychodrama Podcast. And I co-host with another psychologist. We tend to talk about societal controversies, mental health, um, psychological issues. And we really try to talk about things with some care and expertise and, and look at different facets of the issue. And I like podcasting for that because I think that when people talk, you can kind of hear more versus, I don't know, tweet arguments or something like that. So um, that's, that's the main thing I've been working oh, on. Was that and a then... shot
0: at me? You kind of looked at oh, no. me and said. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no.
1: <laughs> Not at all. I don't, I don't see you in a ton of Twitter fights, but <laughs> no, I think that was, that was praise to you for your podcast. Um <laughs> Good recovery.
0: Good recovery. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, tell them about your social media and your podcast.
1: I am on Twitter at Dr. Catherine Gordon, D-R-K-T-H-R-Y-N-G-O-R-D-O-N. It's the same on Instagram and you can listen to Psychodrama Podcast on most podcast platforms. I also write, although I I have been writing less just for the sake of time. I, I do sometimes write for psychology today, but you can find links to the stuff I've written on my website, katherinehgordon.com.
0: And you do great work and we appreciate you. you greatly. Uh, this stuff isn't going to go away and we're not going to stop talking about it um, because I, we don't want to diagnose people, but so much of what we see in culture and politics on social media and how politics is covered I think a lot of it, if you understand how people are thinking, how people are coping people's mental health, I think you start explaining a lot of things that the politics don't because I've learned in what I've been doing the last three or four years with, you know, politics is usually just the coat you're putting on and your cultural tribes are kind of the coat you put on and the stuff that's underneath it is where you can really get to the story. And you probably have big, fancy scientific words for that phenomenon, but I Everything we do is about people. And if we study people, you've got to talk mental health. So you use the fancy scientific words for that, but that's where I'm at on it.
1: Uh, I, I, really, I really appreciate our conversations. And the, one of the most important things to me as a psychologist and having these discussions is moving away from the big fancy words and making it accessible so that people can use it in their daily lives, that it's not just restricted to psychologists.
0: Yep. Yeah plus us hillbillies, we have trouble with them big words sometimes. So I appreciate that greatly. So Dr. Catherine Gordon, who can explain it to us in an academic setting and also explain to us like we're five. We greatly appreciate you, ma'am. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Uh, You will be back. I promise. So absolutely. uh, Take care. We are going to talk about mental health on this program, both on Herd Tell, The Long Form, and on the radio show, The Daily Show. Uh, It's too important not to. So much of what we do is just based on our own human behaviors, and we excuse it off with other things. But if we don't take care of our own mental health, and we don't take care of each other's mental health, and we don't care about each other's mental health, a lot of this other stuff we're talking about just isn't mattering as much. We want to gloss over things and stay busy without dealing with these underlying problems. We're not going to do that. Um, our culture has major problems in it. And a lot of those problems are we're not taking care of ourselves and we're not taking care of each other. Something we're going to work on, It's something we're going to talk about, we're going to have experts on like Dr. Katie Gordon and others. We want to give you tools to actually affect this in your own life, taking care of people around you, what to watch for, danger signs, but also positive uh, pop culture media. The reason we talk about those TV shows and movies with her is because if you have somebody that you're having trouble getting into a mental health conversation with them, you can watch a show with them and get into it sideways that way. It makes you a nice easy, lets the show do the heavy lifting, and then all you got to do is talk to the person that you care about. kind of makes it easy. We want to do practical things on our programs. It's not just buzzwords and ethereal theory and things that somebody somewhere else needs to do something about. This is a practical matter that you need to practically apply to your life. It's important. We want to do that. And we'll continue to talk about it on Hurd Tell. That'll do it for this episode of the Hurd Tell podcast, uh, the Hurd Tell Daily Show every weekday uh, for about an hour uh, on the YouTube channel. If you want to watch it, all the podcasting platforms, Big Talker FM, is streaming it. You can do it on their Listen Live tab on their app from the App Store. Also, their Facebook page, Big Talker FM on Facebook, you can watch it there. It's on at six AM in the mornings, three PM in the evenings. We have. Great content every day, trying to turn down the noise of the news cycle, kind of hit some of the headlines. We talk about things that matter. We don't talk about things that don't matter. And there's just caterwauling noise. We don't spend time with that because most precious thing you give us is your time. We want to respect it. We don't want to talk about things that don't matter. We don't want to waste your time. On us being silly. So we try to respect you by doing the best we can with it. We'd sure appreciate you subscribing on whatever platform works best for you. Uh, also, leave a comment and rating. We sure appreciate it. If you have something you want to convey to us, if you got a comment, an epistle, whatever it may be, you got a topic you want covered, you got a guest you think we should talk to, let us know. Herdtelshow at gmail.com. You can email us at Show. On the Twitter, you can direct messages that way. My Twitter handle, 4 for the Fire, you can message me there. We'd love to hear from you. We've already done some topics on the shows based off of what listeners have asked us to cover. We'd love to do so again. Love to get your feedback. Um, if you would do us a real big solid, though, share us on your social media. All those platforms have a share button. Let people know where they can find her. Tell. We'll keep doing it as long as you keep listening. So happy to have these long-form podcasts back up and going. We'll be digging into these issues. These will come out on the weekends, Monday through Friday. We'll see you here for the Herd Tell Daily Show uh, with a great guest every day and the topics of the day. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. None of this works without you. We wouldn't have anybody to talk to. You're the most important part of what we do. So wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well-fed. And we'll see you next time for Herd Tell. All the music on HerTel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies.